The first Pentecost went this way. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, they are filled with new, new wine. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God stand forever. Well, have you ever had something in your life in which when you finally got it, you said, that is worth the wait? That is worth, maybe it was like when you were a teenager and you were waiting for the day in which you got your license and you finally got to get to behind the, 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 the wheel and you got to push your foot on that gas pedal and you felt the power of the engine underneath you and you went, now that is worth the wait. That is awesome. Or perhaps, perhaps it was uh, when you, were, uh, you heard about uh, the new great restaurant in town, and you went into Atlanta, and you heard, this is, this is the place. If you're a foodie, you're like, this is the place to be. And you go, and you waited for an hour and a half for a table, and then you ordered your food, and you waited for your food, and it gets there, and that steak is cooked perfectly, medium rare, because that's the only way God would serve it in heaven. And it is awesome, and it is your taste buds. Every, every, it's an amazing kind of experience. And you go, that, that was worth the wait. Maybe it was uh, you wanting to get married. And you weren't sure, man, God was going to provide. And you finally get married. And you get involved with this person. You've fallen in love. And you go, man, this was worth the wait. Some of you, it's a little bit maybe shallower. You sit outside of a store with glass windows and an apple in the front of it for hours on end. And you got this device and you said, oh, you opened it up and you felt it on your hand and you go, that is worth the wait. What could possibly be worth the wait in which if you, worked for, if you waited for hundreds and hundreds of years? See, there's been this thing in the Old Testament that God and the prophets consistently kept prophesying about and sharing with us about. It's like God was in, and when the Messiah would come, that he would pour out his spirit. No one was really quite sure exactly what that meant, but he would pour out his spirit. And then Jesus comes, and as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, listen, it is, there's something so good coming that it is better for me to leave and for the spirit to come, because when he comes, it will be worth the wait. 
And in fact, Jesus tells the disciples when he is ascended into heaven and they're all standing there agape in the sky, Jesus doesn't say, hey, jump into mission immediately. What does he say? He says, go and wait. And that is indeed what is happening in Acts chapter 1. It is the disciples in the upper room, about 120 of them, they're hanging out, they're kind of hiding out from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Remember Jesus, another just 40 or so, 50 days before, had been crucified on the, cro- on the, on the cross, and he had been risen from the dead, but they were a, a, at risk in being in Jerusalem, and yet God, Jesus told them to wait, to wait. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for what we will call this morning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is used in different terminology throughout the scriptures, the way we talk about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's referred to simply as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All of these refer, kind of caught up under this terminology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the initiating work of God to pour His Spirit out on us. Now listen, understand this. The Holy Spirit was enacting and He was working in the Old Testament. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit hovered over the waters and brought uh, formation to creation. That the, the Spirit was involved in the writing of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit filled particular people for particular seasons and particular ministry in the Old Testament. It was the Holy Spirit that descended upon the temple and the tabernacle. That David in Psalm 51 cries out to God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But what the promise has been that in, in the new covenant, that after God's Messiah has come with, a, with this new covenant that Jesus is going to establish, that not only do we get forgiveness of sins, but we also have the Holy Spirit not just with us, but in us and in our lives. And he is in our lives permanently. He's not taken from us. And he comes to every single believer And my goal and my desire this morning is that you would understand the baptism of the Spirit, that you would cry out by the end of it, that our cry as a people would be this, to cry out to look at your children, to look at your own life, and you say, to cry out to God and say, God, pour out your Spirit on me. I need this. And if I've experienced this in my life, I need you to fill me up again with your Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at baptism of the Holy Spirit this morning. And as we've done a number of times in this particular series, we're doing it didactically. We're going to ask questions. I'm going to ask questions and then answer them. That's how we're going to go through this morning. So three questions for us. First, what is the baptism of the Spirit? What is the baptism of the Spirit? Is the baptism of the Spirit merely, is it just speaking in tongues? Is baptism of the Spirit mean, man, if you, baptism of the Spirit means you, you just kind of go around your life like this all the time? Is that what baptism of the Spirit means? Let's look at the manifestations and what the Scripture actually tells us of what is going on here in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 uh, through 3 or 4 tells us some of these manifestations of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, they're in the upper room, and it says that it brings about some certain manifestations of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon these people. And one of those, what are those manifestations? Wind the rushing sounds, and fire. Now, this all sounds quite kind of apocalyptic, doesn't it? We look at this, and we find the baptism of the Holy Spirit rather strange in our eyes because it comes with these kind of odd, kind of apocalyptic, kind of sounding 
descriptions, earth, wind, and fire. What's going on here, Lords? But the descriptions of these manifestations are actually critical in helping us understand what it is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see, these manifestations, these symbols of God's presence are enormous and significant throughout Old Testament history. Indeed, they are theophanies. Theophanies are God manifesting his presence physically in the world's. And physical manifestations of the presence of the living God in the Old Testament. Well, let's look at just a couple of these. First, the sound like a mighty wind. That enormous sounds that we see in the Old Testament when God in his glory shows up various places. It is, his glory is preceded with the sound of the rushing wind. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, as God's glory cloud descends on Mount Sinai, God is coming down in all glory. It says the people of Israel hear this, and they says that this, there's the sound of a loud trumpet that emanated forth when God's glory came down on Sinai. Rushing winds. We also see that the earth in Genesis chapter 1, that when the Spirit comes, He comes and blows and there is life. And a couple chapters later, when God makes man, it says that God breathes wind. John chapter 3, we saw it a couple weeks ago, that the Spirit blows and brings new life. That God's Spirit, God's presence by His Spirit is often connected with the physical manifestation of wind, with breath. And it filled, it says, the entire house. This wind, this breath of God's. And again, it, this is what happens when God's glory shows up in a place. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 34, it says this. And when the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of God did what? It filled the tabernacle. Second Chronicles 7 when the, tab, the temple has now been built in Israel, it says this, And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, and the glory of the Lord did what? Filled the temple. And then we come, as is mentioned there in Second Chronicles 7, we come to fire. So we've seen wind, we've seen the filling, now we see the fire. It says that, the, that there, this fire comes into the room and it divides into tongues of fire. You know, the, the lapping look that fire makes as it's reverberating with its heat and the oxygen. And it, that, it went over their heads. And so what we see in the scriptures as well, this is one of God's primary ways in which he physically manifests himself in the world. And one of the strangest passages of all scripture in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham and he, he, he manifests himself as a smoking pot that would then go a blazing torch that goes before Abraham. When God appears before Moses and gives Moses his assignment, how did God come to Moses? At a burning bush. That God was in his glory, was there present in the bush. When God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, how did he manifest himself? By a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night that went before that nation. When we come to Mount Sinai, as we've already seen, when he descends on Mount Sinai, it says he comes down with cloud and with fire and with smoke. And we see it again in 2 Chronicles 7, that when God descends, there is fire in his presence. And so when you see fire in the Old Testament, what does it mean? God is here. The glory of God is here. So I think we get the point, right? Sound, wind, filling, fire. This is God's presence, the very glory of God coming down from his throne. But the kicker comes in verse 3. 
Where does the glory of God come from? Does it come to some grand temple on some temple mount? Does it come to a bunch of holy and righteous people? No, it says in verse 3 that the God and his glory, by this manifestation of this fire and wind and filling, it says it rested on each one of them. It came down on the followers of Jesus, and it comes down on us when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The fire came down, and it separated, and it went on every one of the believers. Now do you realize what's happening on the day of Pentecost? Here's your definition. For those of you that, that, that want it spelled out very clearly and explicitly, here's a definition of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is the permanent presence of the glory of God in the Spirit poured into our hearts so that we, every single believer, are empowered for life and ministry. That's what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. To have God come down in all of his glory and rest upon you. Now we're going to drive into some implications of this here in just a second, but I want to get to the second question that we have to deal with first. So God's glory comes to live inside of us But this should bring some consternation and some issues if you know about those fire and wind and filling passages in the Old Testament. How in the world is it possible to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? If the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the very glory of God coming to enter into me and to live inside of me, how is that possible? Verse 1, it says this, And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Real briefly, got to give you some history on Pentecost to try to connect us to what's going on here. The significance of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost, you know, this day was not the first Pentecost. Pentecost was one of the celebrations, the festivals of, that God had commanded the people of Israel have. And Pentecost had two significant meanings to the Old Testament people of Israel. First, it was the beginning of harvest. That it was always, it was 50 days after Passover, and it was there, it was there they began to celebrate what was called the Feast of the First Fruits, so the, the Feast of Harvest, and it was called Pentecost because it came 50 days after Passover. So that's one. It was a celebration of God's provision in the harvest that came every year. But its second implication or meaning of Pentecost to the people of Israel was it was a remembrance of when God gathered the people of Israel together at Mount Sinai. And he gave them his law, and he entered into covenant with them. So 50 days after Passover, the people of God have left Egypt. They are wandering around in the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. God descends on the mount there, and that is the first day of Pentecost, literally. It celebrated both harvest, but also the giving of God's covenant with the people. Now, it's that second way that I want to look at first to help us understand the question, how is it possible for God's glory to come live inside of us? And also show you why this has to be a question. Because if you compare Pentecost on Sinai with Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2, there are some things that are like and there are some things that are unlike. On Mount Sinai, everybody was scared. God comes down in fire and smoke and wind and filling. And yet when that happens, God says, listen, everybody, I am so glorious and I am so mighty. Everybody in in Israel is scared to death to go near Mount Sinai. In fact, God says, none of you lay a foot, not a step on Mount Sinai because my glory will knock you dead. Instead, send to me simply Moses. And so they send Moses up. And Moses goes up to make covenant with God on behalf of the people. And Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, you can't see my glory. 
Because if you see my glory, it will destroy you. So Moses, I'm going to hide you in a rock over here, and I'm going to show you the shadow of my backside, and that alone will have to suffice. And Moses, just from this experience, is so glorious that he goes down the mountain that all the people of Israel go, Moses, you're going to have to put a veil on your face. You are too glorious for us to be in your presence. But what is what's going on at Mount Sinai? There's smoke and there's fire and there's the glory of God, the fire of God. And the reason why people can't be on Mount Sinai is because we are an unholy people. And when we come in contact with a glorious, perfect, righteous, holy God, we burn up. He is a purifying fire. So when it talks about God in his fire and his glory as a manifestation of his presence, that is a glorious and awesome thing, but it's also a scary thing, right? When God as fire comes, he consumes Sodom and Gomorrah. When God in his fire and his glory comes, he consumes Nadab and Abihu. When God in his glory comes, nobody can touch the mountain on which God is at. And therefore, what God's glory is saying by coming in the manifestation of fire is saying, hey guys, you need the warmth of my fire and my glory, but you can't touch it, right? You, you need the warmth in the wintertime of a fire, but if you touch that fire, what happens to you? It purifies you a little bit too much, doesn't it? And if you really catch on fire, you burn to nothing. You are absolutely purified till there's nothing left. We're too weak for fire. And this, this shows us the issue why we have to ask the question, how is it that the God in all his glory would come and reside in us when we are sinful beings. How in the world can the fire of God's glory come to reside in us when God's people couldn't even come within a mountain range of God's glory in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus answers it in an odd place in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. Jesus says this to one of his disciples, to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are, whenever they get a time alone with God, they're always kind of ponying up for some kind of a promotion on the discipleship chain. Verse 35, James and John come to Jesus. They say, they're the sons of Zebedee. And they said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Sounds like one of your kids, doesn't it? And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want to be in your glorious presence. They think in terms of just a king's throne room. But Jesus said this, he answers in an odd way. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what is Jesus referring to in regards to his baptism? Is Jesus referring to his baptism with John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry? No. Because they can experience that. That's water baptism. What would be so hard about them experiencing water baptism? Pour some water on their head, boom, boom, we're done. What would be so difficult about them experiencing that? What is the baptism that Jesus is talking about here? Jesus is not talking about the baptism made in him by the hands of John the Baptist, but he's talking about the baptism that will come by fire on the cross. In other words, why can we not stand in the glorious presence of God? Because God in his perfect holiness is also perfectly wrathful. And when he is in the presence of those who are impure, his fire burns with wrath against them and burns them up. And so what does Jesus have to do in order for the glory of God to come to us, what has to happen? He has to take all that is impure about us, take it upon himself, and then be burned up by the firing wrath and glory of God upon the cross. 
That's the baptism that Jesus is talking about. He's, Jesus is going to his disciples and saying, oh, you want baptism, do you? You can't handle my baptism because my baptism is literally by fire. My baptism is fire and brimstone. But in order for you to be with me in my glory, what has to happen? That my fire has to be, that the wrath of it has to be taken from you so that my fire simply becomes a purifying, healing work in your life. So that you can actually be in the glorious presence of God. And this is exactly what the cross has done. Do you get what I'm asking here? How can God in his holy glory come to reside in you as sinner? It's because God in Jesus Christ is taking your sin and your impurity upon himself. And has had it burned up by the wrath, fiery wrath of God's. So that now the very fire of God's glory can now come and reside in you. And do nothing in you but heal you and give you power and might. Here's what this means. That the baptism of the Spirit is nothing less than the very presence of the glory of God in the Spirit poured into our hearts so that we are empowered for life and ministry. But the glory of God poured out on us comes to us courtesy of Jesus' work on the cross. Because Jesus has taken the destructive power of God's fiery glory. And what this means then is this. That all of those places that we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament you, where God resided, you have now become. So you have become the burning bush upon which God's glory resides, out of which God speaks. And you are now the mountain of God from which God communicates to his people. And you're now the temple of God in which God resides. You are the place where God comes down. That's literally what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. In the Old Testament are these places where the fire comes down and God resides and fills up a place. That's what we're claiming is happening in the baptism of the Spirit. God is dwelling in you. Have we gotten too used to that idea that it does not blow our minds? Let me see if we can take it from the way Peter talks about it. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He says that when the Holy Spirit comes, we have become partakers of with the divine. This seems, like, this seems like too much, and yet it's true. And if Moses is here on this, on this day of Pentecost, if Moses had what we had, Moses would come running down the aisle, and he would be stamping his feet and jumping up and down and going, he had to put me into the cleft of a rock. But you get God in all of his glory and he resides in you. Do you understand the gift that is yours in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I couldn't get near him, but he comes to reside in you and for you to empower you, not to destroy you. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is God coming to live inside of us. Now, what would happen if you actually believed that God lived inside of you? What would happen to your life? What happens because of the baptism of the Spirit? The rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is essentially a working out of that question. What happens when God comes to live inside of a people? I'm going to look at three this morning. In fact, three, three things that happen when the Holy Spirit baptizes us. What changes in us? And in fact, these three things will become uh, the outline for the rest of our series on looking at the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit baptism comes, what happens? First, new life happens. New life happens. 
Notice there's a radical change in the disciples. These are people who are hiding out in the dark, who a few weeks later, that when Jesus is turned over and betrayed, the disciples do what? Do they rise up with swords and say, we will stand for you, Jesus? No, they run like scared animals. They run for the hills. Peter, the guy who stands up the most, eventually like, betrays Jesus, says, I don't, I don't know him. And the very preoccupation, the, very, the previous occupation of these men before Acts chapter 2 was a preoccupation towards self-advancement of their own kingdom. Right? We already saw it earlier today when I was reading about this passage from Mark 10. If the disciples got one single moment with Jesus all by themselves, what were they after? They're asking Jesus for a better seat in the kingdom. And when Jesus is arrested, they don't rise up and protect him. No, they're all about self-preservation. The character of these guys is shown consistently to be cynical, pessimistic, self-preserving weenies. That's what they are. And yet, suddenly, there is a radical transformation so that when the Spirit of God falls on them, they immediately walk out into the same city that put to death and crucified their Lord. And they go out and they go, we don't care. We're going to tell everybody about Jesus. What happens? The Spirit happens. And they got new life. And with that new life came a courageous joy Paul talks about this courageous joy when you get the Spirit. He says this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, why would Paul use the description of wine? That's unseemly. And yet the very thing that we see here in Acts chapter 2 that the people uh, accuse them of is it's 9 in the morning and their guy, these guys are already drunk. So what is it about being filled with the Spirit that is like being drunk with wine? Well, in some ways it is like being drunk with wine. In some ways it isn't being, like being drunk with wine. What is that? What's the connection? It's like this. The reason they thought they were drunk is because when you're drunk, you're fearless. You have a joyful fearlessness. You suddenly start saying things and doing things that you never thought you would be, have the, the courage to do. And that's what these men have. They walk out of the room, something that they were terrified of doing three weeks before. Now suddenly they can stand up and proclaim the goodness of God. How is it not like alcohol, though? How is it not like drunkenness? Well, you know, a drunkenness is not actually, alcohol is not actually a stimulant, it's a depressant. Alcohol, the reason why you can say things in a fearless way when you have alcohol in your system is because it depresses all of your inhibitions. And so suddenly, you're depressed in such a way that you go, I don't care what people think of me. But actually, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not a depressant, it's a stimulant. Suddenly, it's not that the world, the realities of the world become less real to you. It's that you see the world as it really is, and that gives you the courage to speak out with joy and abandon because you know the good news of Jesus Christ. You know that God has raised Jesus from the dead. You know that you have a hope eternally in heaven. The Holy Spirit gives you joy through intelligence, not through stupidity. We should remember this as evangelicals, that an anti-intellectual bent towards, towards our approach to, to faith and to scripture and to reason is antithetical to the Spirit's work in our lives. It says when the Spirit comes, you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. You don't just become a bunch of Bible-thumping, backwoods crazies who no longer think anymore. Actually, he empowers your mind to think rightly for the first time in your life. That's what the Spirit does. So the Spirit gives new life, so that you have joy and courage, and finally, for the first time, maybe some intelligence. Second, he gives you new mission. New mission. The disciples are waiting, 120 of them, and when the Holy Spirit comes, they immediately get going on mission. And 
I mean, they, 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 don't, they, they don't wait around. They don't decide to have a prayer meeting. They, I mean, they go, and boom, we get outside the door and we're preaching. That's immediately what begins to happen. And what are they, what's the first thing that they begin to talk about? They talk about, man, they talk about their own righteousness. They get up and talk about all the work that they did and waiting for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it say that comes out of their mouth immediately? is they begin to talk about the great deeds of God, the great deeds of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit mission begins to happen in your life and you find yourself, you can't help it, talking about, joyfully obsessed about the gospel of Jesus. Why did the Holy Spirit come on this day? We already kind of looked at the Pentecost idea. We looked at the second idea, which is that it's 50 days after Passover when Moses was on Mount Sinai. But what's the other implication of Pentecost? What is it? It's the harvest it's the first fruits. And that's what Pentecost is also about. 50 days after Passover was the celebration of first fruits. And that's what God is telling us in Passover. That's why the Spirit comes on Pentecost. That now is the time for the harvest. Go out in mission. It is harvest time. The fields are white for harvest. And I've sent my Spirit to empower you and to gift you to be, take part in God's great work, his great mission to bring in the harvest of this world. And therefore, when you, when you have a new mission, guess what? Your whole life, when you have the Spirit of God who baptizes you, your whole life gets centered around mission. Everything. How do I educate my kids? Well, is the question about how do I make them and get them into the best college? Or is the question, how do I educate them the way best to prepare them to be on mission? that I'm preparing arrows to be shot into the world, not simply just little children to be protected in our isolated bubble or to protect them and shoot them out too quickly before they're ready. But I'm going to prepare my children in wisdom to be ready to be shot out because I want to be a family. I want to be a parent about mission. How do I spend my money? What is the best way to use my money for mission? You know you're thinking differently when you think that way. Where do I live? What neighborhood needs to be engaged on mission? Maybe that should determine where I live. Who should I marry? What partner, not just someone who makes me happy, but what, who can I partner with in which we can do some devastating work for the kingdom of God together? I mean, to, apart, we can get some work done, but together we become a power couple for the kingdom. Begin to ask yourself these questions, and your whole life begins to be oriented and centered around mission, and we get the ability for mission by God's spirits. What does God provide the apostles here? A miraculous gift, right? They all begin speaking in tongues, I'm going to look at this in just a second. This is not the tongues of 1 Corinthians. This is the tongues to actually be able to speak in miraculously in other languages. So speaking of tongues, let's come to the third thing that we get that's new. We get new life, we get new mission, we get new community. And Andy's going to talk about this more next week. But they're speaking in tongues. Now, tongues are this thing in the last hundred years that have become a great deal, have become, uh, they kind of just gone through a lot of debate as to what tongues are. And there's at least two, a couple different ways in which tongues is referred to in the New Testament. This is not the way tongues are referred to in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The kind of what you think of as the, the Pentecostal or charismatic tongues, a glossolia in which you don't necessarily understand what you're saying and you would need someone to um, interpret what you're saying. Because in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul says, if you speak in tongues in this way, you have to have someone who will interpret it for everybody else to understand. But that's not what's going on in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles are teaching and preaching, and people can understand them in their own language. This is not an incoherent spiritual language. This is a coherent cultural ethnic language that they're speaking. But Luke, the author of Acts, goes into great detail 
You notice we read 13 verses this morning. And the part in which I kind of flew through, but all of verses 9, 10, 11 are all about giving a list of what? All the various languages and people groups that heard the gospel in their own tongue. Now let me ask you this. If the first worship service of the church in Acts chapter 2 was entirely done in Hebrew, what would that communicate to the world? That this is a Jewish religion. That Jesus came for Jews. But from the very beginning, when the Holy Spirit comes, when gospel, Jesus' gospel work begins to be brought, taken forth, what happens? The gospel goes to every tribe and tongue and nation from the very beginning. On the first day that Jesus' church meets, as a spirit-filled people of God, it is an international church. They worship in every known language of the Mediterranean basin. And what is the significance of this? That when the Spirit comes, God is doing something unbelievable in redemptive history. That this is a radical turn the way the world has worked. Where do things start going badly for us in terms of ethnic work, workings amongst people? Where do things go badly in terms of we can't communicate very well in our relationships? Where did that happen? It's right, you may not have read a story like this except when you, maybe you had a children's story of a Bible. It's about this tower. It's from the Tower of Babel in which all the people of the world at that time spoke the same language and they decide that they're going to disobey God and they're going to try to get to God and show God how great they are by building a tower that will rise up all the way into the heavens and then God will see how great we are. And God, it says in Genesis chapter 11 and, and I love the writer of Genesis in which it says that God looks down like the idea of one of us having to look down at an ant. Oh, 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 those foolish people. They've disobeyed me. They think they can mediate themselves, the gap between me and them. In order to discipline them, God sends confusion into their midst so that they all speak different languages. Or actually, they're all speaking the same language, but nobody understands each other. And therefore, this is the birth of all ethnicities that begin to scatter all over the worlds. This is a parable. Because of human pride and human arrogance, the human race is divided into all its warring factions and cultures. Oddly enough, the area near Babel still is having problems with this, isn't it? Where is Babel? Mesopotamia. Huh. You know, the United States of America has learned that there are some, some differences in ethnicities in the Mesopotamian area. We invaded a country about, what, 15, 16 years ago, and we forgot to realize that even amongst, we thought they were all just Muslims, but we, the State Department forgot to realize that there's people called Shias and these people called uh, Sunni Muslims, and that when they are set free, they really hate each other, and they're going to slaughter each other. And actually, then, just within the Shias, there's all these other tribes and groups and families, and they hate each other just as much, and they kill each other too. And what's often, what, what happens? It's, everything explodes. Why? Because of Babel. Because the world in which we have lived, ever since the curse of Babel, ever since the fall of man has been this, is we fight and there is insurrection and there is disagreement and we relationally, we cannot speak to each other, we talk past each other. What happens at Acts chapter 2? Everybody is speaking different languages and yet they hear what? The same gospel. It is the reversal of Babel was the reversal of the curse so that now what do we have in the church? 
The church is to be an international people, a people of all tribes and tongues and nations, so that people are brought together who otherwise have, should have nothing to do with each other, so that people, their prominent identity is not their family or their ethnicity or their race, but my prominent identity is that I'm a child of God and a member of the kingdom of God, and no other identity matters comes close to that. And therefore, in the church of Jesus Christ, there ought to be, there ought to be, there ought to be. If we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled by him, there should be black people and there should be white people. There are, should be country folks, there should be tailor, country club people and there should be trailer park dwellers. There should be educated people and there should be Georgia fans. There should be, <laughs> you see what I did there? There are Marines and there's hippies, there's artists and there's hunters all in the same church. Sojourner Truth, a leading abolitionist woman who has escaped enslavement, said this, I know when the Holy Spirit has come upon me. The Holy Spirit comes when he enables me to love white people. Because white people have done us so wrong, but I love white people because of the Holy Spirit. Can you say that about Democrats? And Republicans and people who don't like your children, and people who live differently than you. Brothers and sisters, it is not Coca-Cola that unites and binds the wounds of the world. It is the Holy Spirit of God, and when he falls, when he comes in power, things change. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? Quite literally, everything changes. Literally, the trajectory of history changes. 2,000 years ago, in a rather obscure Roman outpost, a little-known messianic figure named Jesus died with a few of his followers weeping around his cross. Now that messianic figure has 2 billion followers in the world today. It's almost impossible to find a person in any nation on earth where there are not a peop- there's not a group of people who wouldn't die for the name of Jesus. By the account of any historian, there has never been any singular figure in the stage of the world's history more significant than Jesus of Nazareth. You can't study any field, whether it be medicine, whether it be design, science, governance, philosophy, justice, the rights movement, the abolition of slavery, the improved status of women and children. All of these movements in the world have come about because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happens? What happens? You ever left the room during a football game to go to the restroom and you, you hear in the restroom suddenly outrageous screaming out in the living room and you come out of the bathroom and you go, what happened? What happened? The spirit happens. And so you want, do you want to know, how do you go, okay, that, that sounds good. How do I get that in my life? The more question, the relevant question for us is, is the Holy Spirit happening here? Is he? And more personally, has this Holy Spirit entered your life? How do you get the Spirit-empowered life where you get a new life and you get a new mission and you get a new community? How does that happen? Well, Paul, Peter, in verse 14, what's going to follow here from verse 14 through the rest of the chapter is Peter is going to launch into the first sermon. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it's a three-point sermon. It used, to be, it, was, it used to be always four-point sermons, but now it's only three-point sermons in the New Covenant age. So Peter launches into a three-point sermon. At the end of that sermon, here's what he says. All of you are cut to the heart, says in verse 37. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. In order to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, do you have to have another, a new experience of God? Do you have to learn to speak in tongues? Do you have to, to become really righteous? Do you have to reach a certain level of righteousness in order to get the Spirit? No, all you have to be do, do is be someone who repents of your sin and you look in faith to Jesus and what's the promise? Then you will get the gift, the power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism, the pouring the gift comes to you by faith. So my question for, for us, then this might make us ask the question, if we are so weak, what does this say about our faith in Jesus? Is it real? Because when it says it's very simple, it is not a special group of Christians who get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is everyone who repents of their sins and receives, it receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you have trusted in Jesus. Not just the apostles, not just special Christians, not just Jesus' family, all of them. That means you, the smallest, the weakest, can be empowered by the very glory of God inside of you. And it, it will change your life. And that's where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Lord, I began, I, I want them to be convinced here that they desperately need the spirit of the living God. Or maybe they don't feel it, and maybe I don't feel it with the degree that I ought to as well. But Lord, I'd ask that you would pour out your spirit on this place. That you would do a mighty work and that, Lord, your spirit, when you fall mightily, that it would do a radical transformation. That there would be no doubt in the city of Carrollton if the spirit of God has come to King's Chapel. That there would be no doubt in the city of Carrollton if the spirit of God has come upon the churches of the city. And so, Lord, if we want a, a, a world of unity and beauty if we want our lives to mean something, we need your spirit to be poured out upon us. So spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Break us, melt us, mold us, make us yours, God. And we'll wait, we wait until you do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.